Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Ooh, is that pod on? Welcome to Volume 18 of Next Big Hits, Broadway Bullet. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we've got some great stuff for you this week. We continue our Going Geeky on Spring Awakening series and contest this week with Part 3 as we talk to director Michael Mayer and musical director Kimberly Grigsby. I'm also talking with legend Kristen Linklater. Now, uh, if you haven't studied theater, you might not know her voice, but if you have, you probably used her book, Freeing the Natural Voice, as a text. She gives a great interview, and as an added bonus, uh, she teaches me a little bit about performing Shakespeare. We've got the Alter Boys. we got the producer, book writer, and an actor from Alter Boys talking about the show and the tour that they have recently launched, and we play a couple songs from the show. And Marty Cooper is going to be giving his mid-season report card for Broadway. In On the Positive Side. This podcast is brought to you in part by Buena Vista Home Entertainment's release of Step Up. Incredible dancing and awesome music fuel this exhilarating and inspiring movie on DVD December 19th. And as a quick reminder about our Going Geeky on Spring Awakening contest, we have 10 pairs of tickets up for grabs with a meet and greet with the cast and creatives afterwards. You just have to answer at the end of the series 12 geeky questions, which we are making very prominent. One's available in this podcast, and the other is available in the transcription from the Spring Awakening interview at broadwayworld.com. A little closer to the end date, we'll tell you where you have to email all the answers to. But let's get right underway with things and get geeky. For part three of our series, Going Geeky on Spring Awakening, we have director Michael Mayer and musical director Kimberly Grigsby here in the studio with us. How are you doing just three days before opening? (laughs) You know, we're still standing. Yes. So, Michael, let's start off with first, what drew you to the project of Spring Awakening? I always loved the play, ever since I was in college and I first read it. And Stephen Sater, the playwright, and soon-to-be lyricist, but at the time he was just a playwright, who I had known, called me up and said, I have this idea for a musical of Spring Awakening. And I went Duncan Sheik to write the songs with me. And I said, oh, that sounds great. Because I love Duncan's songs. And Stephen had a great idea. And I had loved working with him on the stuff that we had done together years prior. And we met. That was almost eight years ago. Almost, yeah, almost exactly eight years ago. And so it just went through lots of different phases of development. And about... A year and a half ago? When did we do the concert? Well, it'll be two years in February. Yeah, so almost two years ago, we, Kim and I, and producer Tom Hulse, and Duncan and Stephen, and a group of fantastically talented kids did a presentation of the show at Lincoln Center for the... um, Songbook series. Yeah, the American Songbook series. And that generated this actual production. So that that's what started it. And Kimberly, how did you get roped into this? Um, well, I, I only came on board for that concert. Um, I had worked with Michael on uh, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, so we had 
that experience together. And Duncan and I had worked together on Twelfth Night, Shakespeare in the Park, with Jimmy Smits and Julia Stiles. And um, so we had worked together on that. So I had had my experience with them, which I love working with them. But this is, if you want to talk about geeky, (laughs) the way that I got involved with this, um, they were planning this concert, but Duncan didn't call me and Michael Mayer didn't call me. I came home one night and on my machine, it said, Kimberly Grigsby, this is Tom Hulse calling about the about Spring Awakening. Now, I'm, I grew up as a pianist, and, you know, studying to be a classical pianist, Amadeus <laughs> was calling me to be involved <laughs> with something, and I, I kept rewinding, I'm like, Tom Hulse, really? Is the actor Tom Hulse? It was a 310 number, it was an LA number, so I was like, okay. So I called him up, and I was, you know, I was in love with him, so. <laughs> I'm like, absolutely anything for you, Tom Hulse, I will do. So that's how I got involved. <laughs> But I loved it. No, he's, he dropped off the material. I listened. And I, I mean, the music and the lyrics perfectly um, give you something to hang on to as a, as a teenager, what, what you're going through. So I immediately thought, OK, this is going to be for a generation of people who don't normally come to the theater, but also just something that you would put on and listen to and relate to and be able to work things out through. And um, so and, and then the experience of doing the concert watching these actual kids, not people that are older, but actual kids singing it, and the energy that was coming from that and the honesty of that, it was so powerful and energizing, so it was not hard to say yes and clear the plate, you know? Okay, full disclosure on over here. We had had a very difficult time getting the show into production through the whole period of working on it because people would read the script, which was a 19th century play, they would hear these songs on a CD, which were contemporary songs. They had no idea how it went together. When we finally were putting the concert together, I, frankly, was really tired of getting rejected by people. <laughs> so, And Duncan and I had a, made a, decided that the best way to get Kim would be if Tom called her. <laughs> because we thought, you know, he's a movie star. And I had him, so we had Tom call Kim, we had Tom call Brian Ronan, the sound designer, we had Tom call Lincoln Center, we just, you know, at that point, we were, uh, we just realized that the material itself, until you were in the room experiencing it, was impossible to explain. And so we had just been, and it wasn't like we'd gone through musical directors and sound designers or anything. It was literally theaters. We would, we'd sent it to so many different theater companies to see if they would put it on. And at this point, we thought, this is our last chance, really, you know, to to get a, a real viewing and to have people have an opportunity to experience the show. So Tom was in charge of organizing that. <laughs> Well, I have one question in particular. You can be, I'm sure you'll have some other moments you want to bring up, but there's one moment in the in the show that I really had a question about. Most of the scenes are played very straightforward. The actors talk and relate directly to each other as if a scene, and then the songs are done kind of in a concert scenario with the microphones. Mm-hmm. Except for one scene between uh, I Don't Do Sadness and Blue Wind mm-hmm. is done, the scene itself is done on the mics. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering what, your reasoning was for taking that scene specifically in such a different way? It's a complicated, and here's a really geeky answer. <laughs> There's, there are lots of reasons for it, but I would say there are three main reasons. One is the stupid obvious reason, which is I knew I wanted them to be singing at those mics for their songs, 
and getting them from the scene to those mics was a complicated, near impossible thing to do without it being really awkward. That was one thing. But number two, the second reason, is that in the play itself, Ilsa, I mean the, the source material, Ilsa isn't, we, we find out at the very end of the play that the masked man, which doesn't exist anymore, says to Moritz in the graveyard, I came to you once before and tried to stop you from killing yourself. Scholars have agreed over the decades that what that refers to is that he, sort of as a shapeshifter, had come in the form of Ilsa. So it wasn't really Ilsa. It was the masked man in disguise as Ilsa, which means that the actual scene between Moritz and Ilsa, as originally written by Frank Vedekind a hundred and some odd years ago, wasn't a real scene and that they never really connect, which they don't, right? So she says, come with me, and he says, I can't. They're really in their own little world. And then the third reason is that it was an homage to Elizabeth Lecomte, the uh, director and um, artistic director of the uh, Worcester Group. And I've just always been a fan of theirs, and I just thought, you know, I really believe in the theory of the avant-garde, which is that the avant-garde is there for practitioners. It's not there for the general public. And so people like me, who are, like, not such brilliant artists, but the ones who have, have more traffic in the commercial world and real people, we go to see the work that is done by the true masters and the true innovators like Richard Foreman and Elizabeth Lecomte and Peter Brook and people like that. And we take from them and we sort of make it, you know, accessible. <laughs> anyway, so those are the, that's why. Those are the three reasons. I had a question for you, Kimberly. Mm-hmm. Does the musical director, first off, do you have any input into sort of the orchestration and the band as oh, well? Yeah. Okay, yeah. because one thing I particularly liked in, in terms of your talking about how they saw the scenes as 1891 and the mm-hmm. music modern, one choice that seemed to be made a lot in the instrumentation I really liked is almost a um, dulcimer-like guitar sound near the beginning of the songs. Then the cello, I think, also yeah. really helped move these songs into something that sounded contemporary, but uh, just that slight yeah. bridge as they're moving from yeah. the talking into the songs. Right. Well, that, I mean, that's all Duncan. Duncan, um, when we, you know, we did the concert that we didn't have any string instruments. It was just his band, you know, two guitar, two Duncan playing guitar and Jerry playing guitar and bass and eyes on the piano. No harmonium at that point. <laughs> and the, and Weezy honker. <laughs> <laughs> and um, when we went, came, when we were doing it for the Atlantic, he said, I want to add cello and I want acoustic bass in addition to electric bass. And there was some resistance by some people saying, oh, this is going to be a rock score and that's going to make it not be. <laughs> and it was Kim not said, be... no, it could be cool. It could yeah. be cool. I said, you know what, Duncan, this is, if you actually listen to what's going on, people are actually using acoustic instruments. We're moving away from, you use synthesizers for synthesizers because we use computer. I mean, there are computer tracks, but they are um, actual computer sounds that an acoustic instrument could not make save the harpsichord since we couldn't fit a harpsichord the harpsichord (laughs) is on the track but i agree with you i mean i love the idea that you have the the cello and it's not an electric cello i mean he's just mic'd cello violin viola playing with an electric bass and with electric guitar and then you have a harpsichord with an electric guitar i mean that's i love that the combination of the instruments and then 
my pump organ, the harmonium, <laughs> and tying it all together. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, but Duncan, it was all of the orchestration was all Duncan's. But idea. Kim really participated in when, once those orchestrations, and it's hard to call them orchestrations for such a small yeah, arrangements. Yeah. Once yeah. they existed, Kim was really instrumental, so to speak, <laughs> in helping Duncan really achieve what his vision was, the way he heard it, because she's in it now. It's the first time Duncan has been outside the band. That's also a really cool thing about this production, is Duncan, as the composer, is finally actually outside of the experience of playing. So he can he can be out there. Kim now is in it. So she's got a, a different relationship to the music, and so it's been really a great collaboration to watch them because he can say, well, what I want is this, and Kim can say, the way to do that is this. And so not that's, to speak that, But that's fun. I mean, that's what's fun about putting up a show is the collaboration. Michael also is a fantastic musician, instinctive musician, and so he will say... I just don't like that thing. And his words are not musical. <laughs> so I have to interpret you know, what he actually means. Right. We've worked together, you know, yeah. it's been so many years now yeah. that she could yeah. sort of translate for me instantly, which helps. <laughs> and so Duncan doesn't have to roll his eyes and lie down on the floor and, and cry. <laughs> so that's good. We're very proud of it. Now, I couldn't help but notice that you have a broken foot. Is uh, is uh, that directly from this ordeal at all? No. <laughs> I, you know, this could be one of the geeky questions, actually. Well, it could be a third be. one if you want. But <laughs> you could, um, I was uh, in Provincetown over Labor Day, and it was raining, and I walked on some rocks, fell, twisted my ankle really badly. I thought it was sprained, and then just kept waiting for it to get better. And what happened was there were two, two of the kids in the show, Skylar Aston and uh, Lauren Pritchard, both um, hurt their ankles during the summer run at the Atlantic. And their ankles were still bugging them. One day in rehearsal, the stage manager was making appointments for them to go and have follow-up with the orthopedist. And I said, you know, my ankle still hurts. It's been two months. It's not getting better. It's actually getting worse. She said, I'm going to make an appointment for you. So the three of us went up there, and they were fine, you know, healing properly. And the guy said, you know, you've got a broken navicular, whatever that is, you know. (laughs) Anyway, so he said, how could you be walking on this for two months? You must have a very high pain threshold. And I said... Honey, I'm a director of musicals. You know I have a high pain threshold. <laughs> anyway, so it's uh, it's on the mend, I think. All right. Well, we will now do our official <laughs> geeky questions for the okay. contest. So this is geeky question number five in the whole series. There is an image on stage of a snake. What kind of snake is it? It is my my current favorite snake. I'm a real snake guy. I love snakes. This is a crate. It's actually a banded crate. Crate, K-R-A-I-T. It's extremely venomous, probably 15 times more potent than the uh, venom of a cobra. Why did you put this snake on the (laughs) stage? You know, (laughs) it's almost too humiliating, even for this geeky time. (laughs) uh, I, I like to have something to play with, you know. When I'm during tech, during tech because right. I get so nudgy. And Heather, the stage manager, very, very wisely got me some silly putty. And I started making 
snakes with the silly putty. There's so many questions that just do the story. You come and, up and so I started making this the silly putty into little snakes and I started making little cobras and then I thought ooh let me make it I'll make it a crate you're, you're gonna have to let me know if you wind up with any little stalkers from this episode who leave like know, silly right? putty snakes <laughs> on your door anyway so I would did go, you like, know <laughs> about crates before as you were making it or did you yeah. look it up and you were like oh no I no I know, I know all about snakes snakes okay alright and the crate was always one of my favorites because it's from the uh, story Ricky Tiki Tavi the crate is one of the, is the little snake that Ricky Tiki kills first before he takes on Nag and Nagaina, the two big cobras. Anyway, so it be, it became sort of a running theme during tech about crates, and I finally said, you know what, we need a crate on stage. Now we have one. Geeky question number six, Kimberly, you have a piano in your apartment. Who was the original owner? And this answer will only be available at BroadwayWorld.com. <laughs> it's amazing to go over to her place and just like hear her play Mozart or Chopin or anything um, on that piano. It's a but beautiful piano. How, why do you have well, it? Well, um, Adam Gettle is a very good friend of mine, and this piano is, I mean, it's his, obviously. I'm actually just babysitting it because he's in the middle of one apartment to another apartment. But I've had it for two years. <laughs> He's taken a while to find his next New York apartment. <laughs> so <clears throat> he had two pianos in there, and one went to his other house, and then he just didn't want this one to leave New York. So I was very well, fortunate to... It's a bit of a hassle moving pianos around yeah, in New York, yeah, too. Yeah, so <laughs> he was just like, you know, it fits there, and and, and I love playing that piano. But, so oh, my God, you're there, and you're, you know, you're just having tea or eating one of Kim's delicious cookies that she bakes and just chatting and there you you just your eye just sort of drifts over and you like th that man sat there and composed when he we I mean it's amazing it's a beautiful piano I mean I'm very very lucky but it'll have to go back to Adam soon I'm sure you never know <laughs> maybe he'll never find the right apartment for <laughs> Well, I definitely thank you guys for taking the time to come down and chat with our listeners at Broadway Bullets, especially so soon before you open. I know tensions must be running high. and It's a great distraction, actually. Yeah. We could yeah. keep going all day. Yeah. I'm very happy to just yeah. stay here. <laughs> so if you don't mind. And it's cold out, so it's nice and warm in here. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. It's a safe bet that almost every actor who has studied theater since 1976 has been greatly influenced by the person I'm interviewing today. Kristen Linklater is the author of Freeing the Natural Voice, which is the de facto Bible in universities across the country for teaching actors how to use their voice effectively. I studied her when I was in school, and I'm feeling very much like a nervous pupil <laughs> talking to Kristen. How are you doing today? I'm doing just fine. It's nice to be here. Now, I understand you actually have a new edition of the book coming out. Yes, 30 years. Later, finally I got around to doing a revised and expanded edition of Freeing the Natural Voice. So does this mean that you've rethought everything? Everything's out the window of what we... No, <laughs> no, no, no. The, the spine of the work is intact and it's impeccable and it's what I inherited from my teacher, Iris Warren. And she had an extraordinary insight into the sort of psychophysical workings of the voice and how thoughts and feelings make contact with breath and then turn into sound and get communicated way ahead of, of her time and way ahead of voice science. And she developed a progression of exercises which is the spine of everything that I and all the teachers I've trained do and have done ever since. 
But clearly, over 30 years, I've developed a large number of exercises to work through those exercises on a deeper and more and more exciting level. Well, I guess one of the probably most significant developments since the original book is the constant miking oh. of shows. And I, I was definitely curious to find your thoughts on that whole phenomenon. Well, it makes me very sad. I think well, I'm fighting a rear guard action to save the power of the natural voice. But it makes such a difference if you have actors whose voices are trained, which means that they're big enough and free enough and connected enough to the emotional life of the character and the actor. If they're like that, if they're real actors' voices, then those, and if they're in a decent theater, which is acoustically capable of carrying that voice through to the back rows of the audience, the audience is totally enlivened. They come forward in their seats. The trouble with miking, if it's a big theater, is that quite often you can't quite tell who's speaking. You, know? you get this generalized sound coming out, and if you're in the back row, you can't even perhaps see their mouths moving, and you think, who's saying what? But worse than that is that the voices get modified in the sound booth so that you're getting performance that is mediated technologically. So you don't really get the direct contact between the inner life of the actor on the stage and indeed the inner life of the listener. And it's a very different experience. I guess in a way it would be very similar to, I just saw a show recently where the pit was completely hidden and the piano sounded like a bad electric keyboard and I happened to see the monitor screen and it was indeed a live piano but they'd mic'd it so they'd poorly yeah. that it would have sounded better for them to have plugged in a good synthesizer than to have... That had good quality technological sound, yeah. And so it's easy for the voice to be shifted and changed in that same amount Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. And it unfortunately it, it impacts upon the quality of the energy that the actor brings to the stage because if they if you know that you're not mic'd then the inner psychic and emotional energy that you bring to performance has to come out, has to be expanded into an idea of sharing it with, I always say, share it with your little deaf old Aunt Fanny in the back row. There's a generosity in that kind of performance. And if you know you're being miked, then you don't have to put out quite so much. But and I think that's even a fallacy, too, because, you know, modern mic, I think a lot of people rely on the mics too much to the point where you still need to do a little projection. You need to get some sound to the mic or else yeah. you end up getting feedback issues or, you know, the actors have varying levels on their mics and one actor approaches another actor in a speech and all of a sudden you've got this uh, explosion of sound from two well, people's sets. Yeah, you'd need to do, and I don't think I don't think people do pay attention to that. They they, they would need to do a little more uh, consciousness raising about how how to use a mic in order to use it effectively. But mostly, it's just sort of discreetly, quote unquote, amplifying, enhancing the sound, which is an interference. I mean, I come from a background in, you know, a lot of community theater and, and our college theater and stuff when we did, you know, even musicals, we didn't mic. No. And, you know, I get to the New York Musical Theater Festival, a lot of the shows are being done in very small houses, and, oh, they're mic to the guild. And I'm like, what, what yeah, no, at this point, what do people do before mics? Well, <laughs> it's that they, they, they performed the, with their hearts on their sleeves. They went all the way out there. They opened up. They expended soul energy, you know. And, I mean, I, somebody told me a story about go, uh, hearing uh, Barbara Cook 
cabaret concert or a big a concert. Well, it was a con- it was more than a cabaret because she was in a big theatre, and she did the whole concert on mic. And of course, she's brilliant the way she uses the mic. But then for her encore, she came off mic, and she sang unmiked, and the audience suddenly went crazy, because there's a, a contact there that is that is of a completely other order of of experience. And we've almost lost that. So I, I feel fairly desperate about it because, and I remember coaching a play, a naturalistic play, many years ago now, and the director said, well, we're going to be miked, and it was not a big theater. And I said, how, how on earth are you going to justify miking this? Because these are trained actors. And he said, well, I wanted to sound as if they were at the movies. I wanted to sound as intimate as if it were a film. Well, the art of acting is to project intimacy, is to open up to intimacy and to allow intimacy to go through to the back. That's the art of acting. So if you get too much of this making coming in, you're, I really feel you're undermining the whole art itself, not the art of voice, just but the art of acting. And the art of voice is really at the center of the art of acting, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, this is even way before your time. But it, I go into a bar, a noisy bar in New York, and it really makes me wonder how, back in the speakeasy times, before the singers could be mic, they'd sing with a full brass band and in a club. And I'm just thinking, even with a piano, you know, yeah. I don't know many singers who can sing above a piano in a noisy bar right. and actually be heard in the bar. How did right. they? How well, did they do it then? Yeah, you can do it because <laughs> the human voice is phenomenal. The human voice is huge. If you believe in it, if you enjoy it. If you decide to go all out and spend generously vocally, the human voice is, has an extraordinary ability to rise above sound, to cut through sound. But we're not making that kind of demand on it now, except in opera. I mean, if you go to the to the Metropolitan Opera, it's glorious to hear like, a singing voice sailing out. I don't know, was it 1,500 people in that? In the, mm-hmm. at the metro, sailing out over the orchestra and out into the house and pick it up, and that's that's the thrill of opera. But there's no reason why we shouldn't have that in the theatre as well, except that, of course, that an awful lot of actors are hired to do a Broadway play because they have names that have been built in on television and in the movies, and a lot of them don't bother to go back and do some training before they go back onto the live stage. Not all of them. I mean, I work quite a lot with actors who, when they're coming back to do live theatre, they'll come and they'll work with me for two or three months beforehand. A handful of them, but an awful lot of them don't. And they bring the theatre down, I think. (laughs) There's definitely some actors that have have appeared that shouldn't have made it. But then there's been some great surprises, too, I think. You know, Reba McIntyre, I would say, is is one big surprise, Mm. not from film, but from a musical background, who I think surprised everybody. Yeah, I didn't see it, but yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, Bernadette Peters worked with me for th- three months before she did Gypsy, and she she has a, an e- extraordinary dedication to her craft. There's a number of. Now, what was it like working with Bernadette Peters doing Gypsy? Because I also remember that was a there was a lot of negative buzz about whether or not she could do that show. Before well, you know, it opened, I think I think it's because people have. And she se- did a great job. She was, was a, a, she was glorious in it. But there you know, leading up to it there was all this banter of, Oh, Bernadette Peters, no, she yeah. can't do this role. Yeah, but <laughs> but that was uh, I think it's because they everybody had an idea of you gotta be six foot tall and weigh two hundred pounds to do it. Um, or something. <laughs> <laughs> they had a, they had an uh, they had an archetype 
Gypsy Rosalie that they had in their heads and they couldn't imagine. I think it was a real failure of imagination. People get like that and they, they hang on to their idea of who a character is. But it was even more exciting to see this tiny ball of 300% energy just tearing her heart out. Never seen such a dedicated and heart-rending performance. Now, I know you worked with her also, at least before, in uh, the original production of Into the Woods as well, right? Yeah, yeah. That's uh, one of my favorite productions. Uh, I was quite excited to see that you had worked on that, because uh, the, the PBS production is, you know, I think one of the best taped live theater performances, you know. I haven't seen that. I've got to get that, I guess, and really, really yeah. remind myself. In absence of being able to be there in person and seeing the original cast, it's great yes. that that resource is out there. Yeah. I mean, I was just brought in to do things like, could I do get articulation going so all the words could be heard? <laughs> and, uh, you know, we just did... That those days with with Bernadette, I did a lot of butter gutter butter gutter butter gutter gutter butter gutter butter gutter butter kind of stuff. Really make sure you get your lips and tongue on it. And then I remember working with the ensemble with the chorus to get them to scream. We did a lot of screaming, that kind of thing. I did. Now you've trained a lot of film actors too. And I was questioning: Are there certain elements of the voice training that you feel is not as applicable to film, or are there different? Techniques, because I know a lot of actors have a problem going from the state. You know, a lot of the film people say, "Oh, they're too big. They're you know too big for the camera." And, no, it's nonsense. Mm. It's all exactly the same. You you have to be trained. You have to be trained. As, acting is acting, so you need to train to be an actor, and then it works for stage or for film or for TV. The thing about the voice work, most the most salient part of the voice work that I do is to be truthful. Well, you've got to be truthful if you're going to do film. And to a certain extent, you could say that in film, the camera, the microphone, look inside the actor, whereas on stage, the actor's truthfulness has to come from inside to outside so there's a different deployment of energy to a certain extent but we were talking with we had Alan Rickman in to talk to our students just the other day and uh, he is such a strong advocate of training for, for actors and he went to RADA to train and he said he thinks about his training every every time he does any job but he said one of the times when he really needed his voice training was when he was, I don't know whether it was the Sheriff of Nottingham or something like that, but in one of these, he was on the back of a horse and he was having to gallop towards somebody and stick a spear in them or something and shouting at the top of his lungs across the open fields. And they had to do 17 takes of it. And he needed every ounce of his vocal training to be able to do 17 takes yelling his head off while galloping across a field with a spear in his hands. <laughs> so you don't think of that. You, you tend to think of film as being something that's uh, that you have to de-voice for. It's not so. And I worked with a lovely young actress whose name I'm not going to remember immediately, but it'll come to me. She's, she'd done soaps since she was 11. She's now in her late 20s. She's done daily soaps. And then she came and she worked with me for a couple of years doing Shakespeare, all because she really wanted to start using herself, very talented. And uh, she got really good at her Shakespeare and could really open up and let the emotional stuff and the verse and the size of it. And I, she came back for another class and I said, this is great. Why, what use is this to you? Because I know you keep going back and doing your TV. She said, well, after I do Shakespeare, I get so much better in my television work. I said, what is it? She said, well, it intensifies my inner life. I have a completely different energy when I go back to that. And people comment on how much better I am 
after I've done my Shakespeare work. And she said they're beginning to write different stuff from for me now. <laughs> but you've also done a lot of stage work yourself as an actress. More in my la- in my later years, I would say yes. <laughs> what are some of the favorite things that you've done recently? Well, I had a wonderful time doing Hecuba, the Euripides Hecuba that was two years ago at the Culture Project. Did they mic you? Good God, no. It was a <laughs> tiny fit. <laughs> I wouldn't have dared. <laughs> I'd have killed them. Uh, it was a tiny theater anyway, but I mean, that was a fabulous... That took... Uh, the two great... The two roles, certainly, that have stretched me to my nth degree were Hecuba and King Lear, because I did King Lear in an all-female production of Lear when in the 90s I had a, an all-female Shakespeare company called the Company of Women. And I played Lear and I played Hecuba and they, they both, in a way, demanded the same extent of energy and both vocal energy but emotional energy, one and the other. And I really don't have to act anymore. I think I've done it. <laughs> I've done Hecuba, I've done Lear. Well, even, even beyond your book, you're directly still working with some people. You, you're the head of acting at Columbia University, correct? Yeah. How long have you been doing that? I've been at Columbia since 97, 1997, so it's nearly 10 years now. And I really love working there. It's, they have, we have wonderful students. I really enjoy them enormously. And I can train. I mean, I, I think I'm doing the best training that I've ever done in my life at Columbia because I get enough time. It takes time. This is one of the things that's kind of hard these days and everybody wants everything instantly, you know, is if you're going to really get this thing called freeing your natural voice, what you're, you're doing is reconditioning a whole way of uh, using yourself in communication. And it's a deep reconditioning and it takes a year, probably two years for it to settle and for you to feel, oh, okay, now I've gone somewhere different, somewhere new, new old, because it seems, once you get there, it seems easy, but it takes quite a long time to get the reconditioning. Now, that's largely a graduate program. It, it is. Yeah. It is a graduate so program. It's, gra- it's a professional theatre, tra- professional actor training program for an MFA. As a graduate program, how many of the people that come in would you say have already studied your book? Mm, 60%. Not all of them. No, but, but I would say, uh, or they say they have. <laughs> <laughs> they may not have. Well, I thought one thing that might be fun for listeners if there's something that works without the aid of visuals is, as I said, I've studied your work, but it's been a while past. Uh, I I graduated in 95, so I probably developed some bad habits along the way, so I was wondering if maybe you had any suggestions for me as a a vocal host for the show as to what I could do to improve. Well, do you want to speak some Shakespeare? And I could... (laughs) (laughs) Because what you're... You've got a good voice. I mean, it's fine for for what you're doing, isn't it? Don't you think? Well, I do. You, I, want, to, do you want to speak some Shakespeare? Let's see. I, Ooh, great. Do I have a play up here? Yeah. I did at one point, but um. Uh, <laughs> what's okay, that? Okay, Midsummer Night's Dream. Oh, Midsummer Night's Dream. All right. <laughs> okay. Let's see. Off the cuff. Let's see what, what would you do? What would be a good thing to a little bit of Oberon? Okay, yeah, is uh, Oberon's near the beginning, right? I don't have my glasses. <laughs> I bet you hadn't prepared for this, eh? No, no, but not good for you. All right, let's do it. I again. did Demetrius in a. <laughs> we did a high school production of this, where we did some segments and stuff, and it was all modernized with pop rock characters, and we did yeah. uh, Demetrius as as Billy Idol, <laughs> basically. <laughs> what do you want uh, to look at? Can you spot a bit of Demetrius that looks familiar? Um, you know, because the thing is, one trains one's voice because there's a need, you know, because it's for something. So if it's for Shakespeare, that's one thing. 
I'm glad to say that you have a nice, relaxed, rich voice, which I would like to take some credit for, but probably can't. You're probably, oh, you, born, you. you're probably born with it. Uh-huh. And it's perfect for, for what you do for the, for the microphone. <laughs> okay, this is All a right. total cold reading, okay, so I'm not going to claim any brilliance on the acting front. Here we front. go. <laughs> this is Oberon from uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. That very time I saw, but thou couldst not, flying between the cold moon and the earth, Cupid all armed, a certain name he took, and a fair vestal throned by the west, and loosed his love shaft smartly from his bow, as it should pierce a hundred thousand hearts. But I might see young Cupid's fiery shaft quenched in the chaste beams of the watery moon, and the imperial votress passed, let's probably pass it, (laughs) pass it on, in maiden meditation, fancy free, yet marked I where the bolt of Cupid fell, it fell upon a little western flower, before milk-white, now purple with love's wound. And the maidens call it love in idleness. Fetch me that flower, the herb I showed thee once. The juice of it on sleeping eyelids laid will make or man or woman madly dote upon the next live creature that it sees. Fetch me this herb, and be thou here again, ere the leviathan can swim a league. Okay, all right. Now sit up. Awful. <laughs> sit up straight. Okay. Sit up straight. So you've got to get your breathing. So you've got to have a spine, a long spine. I don't think Oberon would probably slouch much. <laughs> probably. Do you not. know what I mean? I mean, he's got to fly every now and again, hasn't he? So he's probably going to have an upward energy somewhere in him. All right. Now he's also probably got a little bit more lip, lips and tongue life. So just do, um, just do a little. Oh, good. As soon as you did that, your voice also went more into the middle range, which is probably going to serve this this language a little bit better. Rather than down there. Right. So that you got a lot of lightness in it. Gada 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 gada. I can see you did my exercises once way back when. All right. Gada 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 gada. Gada 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 gada. Good. Now just start with that kind of energy. That very time I saw, but thou Good. couldst that not. That very time I saw, but thou couldn't not, right? Da, 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 <laughs> this is where it gets blah, blah, blah. to be cold reading right. time. <laughs> no, yeah, I know, and I'm going to give you line readings, what's more, go. That very time I saw, but thou couldst not, flying between the cold moon and the earth. Good. Now, the little imagery there, flying between the cold moon and the earth, right? So you have to see some, that flight. There's the cold moon, there's the earth. So just see the cold moon. That very time I saw, but thou couldst not, flying between the cold moon and the earth, Cupid, Cupid. all Cupid, all Who did you see? Who did you see? Cupid, all armed. He had his bow and the arrows, right? So you have to kind of see that. Just say Cupid. Cupid. Right, so gada, 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 gada. Gada, 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 gada. Cupid. Cupid. All armed. All armed. A certain aim he took. Good. So then that's the end of that first little thing. I saw Cupid all armed. Mm-hmm. Transitional thought, little thought transition. A certain aim he took. Cupid all armed. A certain aim he took at a fair vestal. What, now, and then we have the to know who did he aim it at? At a fair. Now, actually, what we know, those of us who, who know something about this speech, is that Shakespeare is also writing about Queen Elizabeth at that point. So the fair vestal is the Virgin Queen Elizabeth, right? So he's doing double thing here. He's got Oberon, but he's also saying he's paying little homage homage to Queen Elizabeth. So took aim at a fair vestal, throned in the West, right? So pick that up, phrase that. Cupid, all armed. A certain aim he took at a fair vestal, throned by the West. Great, go on. <laughs> and, lo- oh, okay. Did you breathe? <laughs> 
not. <laughs> I'm like, oh my god. Oh my god. Now, now that you're getting yes, because you're getting into so that's when you just need to pay a little attention to as the thought changes, let your breath change, let your breath come in. Go on. Okay, I guess I'll let myself have the breath. I'll back it. Right. Cupid, all armed. A certain aim he took at a fair vestal thrown in by the west. Breathe. And loosed his love shaft smartly from his bow, as it should pierce a now, hundred... Now, why do you hit should? You don't have to yeah, hit should. It. As it should pierce a hundred thousand... That's probably the Chandler, you know, from Friends. And uh, could anyone well, be... I, I don't, yeah, I don't think he's the best uh, yeah, influence don't. right here now, I have to say. Yeah. As it should pierce, because it's the verb, then going to the noun, and you have to see it go. Just do it. You can pick it up right there. And it should pierce a hundred thousand hearts. But I might see... But, but, now, the change of thought. But... As it should pierce... Don't hit that should. Okay, as, as it, it should, should pierce... pierce. Okay. Drop the should away completely. As it should pierce a hundred thousand hearts, but... I might see young Cupid's fiery shaft quenched in the chaste beams of the watery moons. Yes, yeah, so some, so Oberon saw something that nobody else could see. I saw it going into the chaste thing of the watery moon. So a little poetry there. Go on. Okay. Quenched in the chaste beams of the watery moons. Yeah, breathe. And the imp... <sighs> breathe. Yeah. And the imperial votress. And the imper so the moon caught it, and it completely defused or desexed Cupid's arrow. And the imperial votress. What happened to the imperial votress? Pass it on. Pass it on. Uh, go on. <laughs> fancy free, is it? In maiden meditation, fancy free, yet. Yet? This is the next bit of the story. So the buts and the yet sort of give you a little shift. And do you want to do a little more? Sure. Yeah, come on. Yet, marked I where the bolt of Cupid fell, it fell upon a little western flower. Yes, good. Keep your voice voice up there in your mouth. Milk white, now purple with love's wound. Good, so there's something very knows a little more sexual than that. Okay. Think of that shaft going into the flower and it was like like a little bit of sexual activity right there. It fell upon a little western flower before milk white now purple with love's wound. And maidens call it love in idleness. Fetch me that flower. Then there's a change of thought. Fetch me that flower, right? Fetch me that flower. The herb I showed thee once, the juice of it on sleeping eyelids laid. Good, so now this is the plot. So, right, so there's the fun, the juice of it on sleeping eyelids laid. Now you've got the the poetry sort of left behind a little bit. We've got a job to do now. The juice of it on sleeping eyelids laid will make man or woman madly dote upon the next live creature that it sees. Fetch me this herb. And be thou here again, ere... When? Ere... What? This is a re- now this is a command? Ere the Leviathan... Ere the Leviathan... Swim a league. Yeah, don't hit the... the <laughs> there you go. You're a very apt pupil. Yeah, totally cold. But wasn't that fun? <laughs> it was. And I think Didn't you feel it shift? 
Yes, it's a, a great experience. To, I don't think I got quite that experience just from the book <laughs> and my professor. At the no, <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not. Well, it's great, it's so teacher. exciting working on Shakespeare because it's a thing of tuning. I mean, I do think one of the things I've developed more and more over the 30 years, well, 40 years I've been teaching, but I've developed more and more of a, I can tune in to, to Shakespeare and I can tune into the person who's speaking to Shakespeare and somehow we get to a place of understanding that is all to do with it being alive and real and a heightened energy, heightened excitement. You felt that a little bit, didn't yes, you? Yes, yes, definitely started getting yeah. it towards the end in a, in a way I hadn't quite before. I haven't done a lot. I've taken the, the voice training, but I haven't done a, a lot of Shakespeare. <laughs> so, you know, I have a very, I think, a very good other book, which is called Freeing Shakespeare's Voice. Yes, that would be your sequel. <laughs> well, <no. laughs> so to speak. Yes. Oh, I see. Back in about 93? <laughs> 92. 92, yes. okay. Yes. So that's a kind of, that gives a lot of, the, um, a lot of the clues as to how you understand Shakespeare and how you speak Shakespeare, so it makes sense. Now, have you done any audio CDs as well at all? For no, I don't want books? to do that because people will tend to imitate the sound, you know? rather than, um, I mean, the problem I have with a lot of my students, uh, some students now, some younger students, who have listened to a lot of British Shakespeare, and they come out sounding totally phony, because all they're doing is imitating the sound, and they're not bothering to think. So even with this new book now, I am saying that I will do a little bit of audio on my website, so that if people can if people don't understand what the sound as it's written on the page is, then they can get an example of the sound on my website. But they have to read how it is arrived at because it's in what's happening physically, the way you rethink your breath, your jaw, your tongue, your soft palate, the way you retrain the behavior of the vocal musculature, that the sound then changes in, the res in its result. But you have to work on cause. And if I do a CD or a video, they're going to just imitate the result. And that won't do it. Well, I think for our listeners who aren't, you know, who are just theater fans and not actors as well, I think it's worth pointing out that this type of training is also very good. Anytime you have to do a public speaking or oh. get in, in front of people to put yourself, this kind of thing can give you a lot more confidence, you know. Oh, it's all to do it. They may have studied public speaking classes, but this outside of drama, different. they never get into the voice and no. actually how to... It's a very different, a very different thing from uh, just studying rhetoric or how to present because it's to do with recognizing your physical state, learning how to relax tensions, finding out where your breath is, and it's and you learn how to bring yourself with a capital S to its most effective experience, to the most effective state from which you can do public speaking or teaching, indeed, so that it. A, a warm-up of, of this sort prepares you for many, many, many different kinds of activities, not just a theatre one. I mean, I'd love to get my hands on some politicians, except that I'd teach them how to tell the truth, <laughs> and it might ruin their careers. <laughs> because that's really what the work is all about, is being truthful. I guess before we wrap up, I want yeah. to remind everybody that Freeing the Natural Voice just came out in its newly expanded edition, 40% new stuff, larger bigger, better. Would you say what its subtitle is? It's Freeing the Natural Voice, Imagery and Art in the Practice of Voice and Language. Kristen Linklater, what a pleasure to have you. Before we close out, I'm sure you have one. What are one or two of your favorite tongue twisters? In tongue Wyoming? twisters. 
I, I, oh goodness, I'm not, I'm not actually tremendously um, up in tongue twisters. I do think some of the Gilbert and Sullivan, you know, when, when I'm lying awake with a dismal headache and reposes taboo by anxiety, but you see, I don't even know that one. I do Billy Button bought a bunch of beautiful bananas, giddy goddesses gathered together in gossiping garrulous groups, Lily Langtree lay on the lawn and languidly lasciviously laughed. You know, we do little jingles like that. We do them on, on arpeggios. Lily Langtree lay on the lawn and languidly lasciviously laughed. Giddy goddesses gathered together in gossiping garrulous groups. You know, do little stories like that. My favourite has always been, oh, what to do to, uh, no, I'm not. <laughs> oh, what to do to die today in a minute or two to two, a thing distinctly hard to say but harder still to do, for they'll beat a tattoo in a minute to two with a rat tattoo and the dragon will come when he hears the drum at a minute or two to two today at a minute or two to two. Brilliant. You get an A. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. My total pleasure. Thank you. In his 25 years in the heart of Broadway, working at the Colony, Marty Cooper has seen and met just about everything, and he likes most of what he sees. That is why he calls his weekly segment On the Positive Side. Hey, it's Marty Cooper once again on the positive side. A few issues I'm going to take up. One of them, before I get started, I'd like to uh, tell you people, if you don't know about them already, uh, Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS. They're at 165 West 46th Street, 13th floor. Phone number 212-840-0770. And they have great merchandise. So if you need a last-minute gift, as I used to say on the one of the old TV ads or radio ads, uh, give the gift of giving. That's probably the best way to describe it. You can get CDs, calendars, coffee table books, snow globes with every show possible in the center. Just wonderful, wonderful gift items. Uh, and it's easy shopping. Uh, you can find them also uh, on the internet at www.broadwaycares.org. And you can buy right off the site. So uh, and just tell them, mail it on to my friend or loved one, whatever. I suggest it. I've done it. And that's about all I'll have to say about that. I'm going to say a few more things about Spring Awakening. Michael Gilbo and myself have been uh, very, very passionate about this show. And uh, for the first time in a long time, just about every critic has concurred with me. No one usually agrees because, uh, as you know, I like almost everything. But if you read the reviews yesterday morning, they were amazing. I find it an amazing show. It should be required viewing for anyone over 13. Uh, in fact, I was looking at Broadway.com the other day, and they have, of course, a, a videotape people forum of people that have gone to see various shows. And there's this 63-year-old grandmother who took her teenage grandchildren. And at first she was felt a little funny about it. And then she says, no, they're, they're hip enough. They, they're going to get it. So take anyone 13 or over and uh, have a good time. My third issue is uh, what I probably call uh, a midterm report card. People were saying early on in the season that all we're getting is revivals and it uh, doesn't look good. Well, so far... From what I hear now, there is only one failure on Broadway this year. And I hear even that's a, a pretty decent show. High Fidelity announced today that they're closing on uh, on the 17th of the month. I'm sorry I won't be able to go see it uh, because I'm booked through then. Otherwise, uh, it would definitely be on my list. To this point, that seems to be the only failure. And to some people, it's not a failure at all. Uh, because I spoke to a few people that say that 
was pretty decent show. And reading the reviews, I didn't feel they were unkind, and re really. The worst thing people had to say about it, that they found it boring in some ways. But I can't talk. I haven't seen it. And I'm sorry to see it go, because as you know, I root for everything. But as far as the rest of the season goes, we have two great revivals, as I've stated before, in, in Chorus Line and uh, Les Mis. We have some fantastic new shows. Spring Awakening and uh, Grey Gardens are actually transfers from Off-Broadway, but they both have fantastic reviews. Poppins that we have from, from Disney. We also have a transfer from Encores from a few years ago. Apple Tree with uh, Kristen Chenoweth, uh, Brian Darcy James. That can't be bad. Uh, I know that's going to be reviewed well because it was fantastic in Encores. The revival of Company I'm anxious to see. I think that art form, as we might want to call it, it might work better for company than Sweeney Todd worked in some people's eyes, including mine. I didn't like uh, the small production of Sweeney Todd, but they say this is a little more fitting. So I don't think it's a bad season at all. So far, we've got a lot of pluses, and to my knowledge, only one minus. So once again, this is Marty Cooper, and I'll see you next week on The Positive Side. On the Positive Side is brought to you by The Colony, online at colonymusic.com or in the heart of Broadway at 49th and Broadway. You can always say, I found it at The Colony. I'd like to take a moment to reiterate what Marty had to say about Broadway Cares, Equity Fights AIDS. I do know a lot about their charity, but I did not know they have a gift shop. So that's a good reminder. Sounds like something I could definitely use for picking up some gifts. So that was at broadwaycares.org, and it's definitely a worthwhile cause to support. And just on a personal note, I thought I'd let everybody know that I have quit smoking. It has now been almost a week, and the odd thing is, is while I've been going through withdrawal, I haven't had any urge to get a cigarette, and that is because I went to see the Mad Russian in Boston. I had heard from a few people who actually went to him that it worked, so I gave it a shot, and I have to say, he's amazing. If anybody's looking for a little bit more information, he doesn't advertise. He goes by referrals only, and it's very hard to explain to you what he does. He doesn't really do anything except for it, it works. And uh, But you can email me at broadwaybullet at nextbighit.com if you want more information about where he's located. I can't explain how I know. I've quit several times and slid back after a couple months, but uh, he did something. And all I can say is I know I'm done. I know I'm not going back to cigarettes, so let's get... Back into the program with our last interview. The Off-Broadway Music Altar Boys has hit the road, and with us in the studio, we've got Ken Davenport, one of the creative producers of Altar Boys, <laughs> Zach Hanna, one of the actors currently in Altar Boys, and Kevin Del Aguila, the writer of Altar Boys. So how are you guys doing? Good. Great. Fantastic. Thanks for having us. First off, I guess our listeners should know, since we started our whole Broadway Bullet with Nymph, Remind everybody that Alter Boys sprung out of Nymph. And from what I understand, um, Ken, this was a, kind of an idea of yours. And you approached Kevin about the show? It stretches back. Uh, the, the genesis of the Alter Boys actually goes way back, about four or five years ago, when a good friend of mine, Mark Kessler, and I were batting around a whole bunch of ideas for shows. And literally out of his mouth, after you know the sports review that we disbanded because we realized only guys would want to see it and they don't buy theater tickets, <laughs> that... Uh, out of his mouth came the idea of a Catholic boy band with characters named Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Juan. And immediately my ears perked up and I said, there's, there's a musical somewhere there. Uh, because the idea didn't make sense. There was a 
contra- a natural like contrast in this idea of a boy band that looked you know as sexy as NSYNC but sang about how they wanted to you know take a girl to uh, dinner in a movie instead of taking her home to their crib. The idea kind of came out from there, and then it was a long creative process, and we. Music actually in this came first. I mean, we fr- I first went to two musical associates, Gary Adler and Michael Patrick Walker, the composers of the show, who started to almost like pop writers riff on this idea and write songs that they thought the altar boys would sing. And it was much later, once we had a few songs, we were like, these are great. Now, what the hell is the story? <laughs> uh, and that's when Kevin came aboard to to really kind of give it a heart and, and a story and a journey for these five boys with these great songs along the way. Kevin, how was it taking the the book, per se, from a back end after the songs have been written? In- it was much more difficult than it appears, actually. <laughs> I mean, uh, I had seen a couple of a presentation of some of the songs um, before I came on board, and I, I remember hanging out afterwards with Jeff Marks, one of the uh, Avenue Q uh, creators and composers, and we were talking about it, and I, I just said, gosh, you know, I pity the poor guy who's going to have to, like turn this thing into a, a piece of theater, you know, and, and stretch this one joke out for an hour and a half. And, um, you know, lo and behold, I am that poor, pitiable guy. <laughs> but um, the main sort of issue with it was that it was, um, I mean, I, I really didn't think that the, the idea was that funny, or it didn't really speak to me anyway. Um, but what happened around the time that I sort of came on board was um, this kind of mainstreaming of religion all of a sudden, like, you know, kind of bubbled up out of nowhere with, you know, the Passion of the Christ and, you know, all of this stuff. And suddenly there was a lot of attention in the mainstream media being paid to this, to religion and to to this new uh, marketing group that seemed to suddenly appear out there that people could make money from. And and so even though boys, boy bands seemed a little passe, you know, then I, I, I thought, well, this is what this should be. You know, God is big business here now. So um, that's when I thought that it, it, it might have something to say. And, and um, you know, consequently, I don't think that the show really makes fun of religion as much as, like, the commercialization of religion. You know? But the main challenge was really trying to turn it, what's essentially a boy band concert into a piece of theater that, you know, has characters that you care about and, and you know, a, a, a plot that you can follow and, and, um, and is uh, funny and moving and... and uh, so, yeah, that was the that was the big challenge. <laughs> <laughs> now, Zach, you were involved on the road first. This is like a pre-tour, I understand. Yeah, we did. Uh, it's kind of a test, uh, I suppose, for uh, the big tour that's just kicked off uh, a couple months ago. We did a sit-down company in Detroit and Des Moines just to kind of see how it would work in uh, different sort of demographic. And, and how did it go in Des Moines? Uh, actually, fantastic, uh, which is really a testament to the show, I think. Uh, even, you know, people from all over have enjoyed it, uh, from at least everywhere I've seen. And, you know, I was a little, I, was, I mean, I'm from northwest Ohio, right near Detroit, where we opened up. And, you know, I was a little uh, weary, wondering how it would, you know, go over in the Midwest. And people, people loved it. People love it here. People loved it there. So uh, people loved it everywhere. So uh, I understand now you're gotten a permanent position in the New York company here. Yes, after a three-month hiatus uh, from the tour to uh, to here, um, after Tyler Maynard, who originated the role, he left at the beginning of June, and um, and so I came in to replace him and have been here ever since, uh, since the beginning of June, so having a great time. I, I think there's always walking a fine line between when religious plays 
you know, but I think from what I from the show, you walk it, which is you got to put a little humor in into it, but you also got to make it sincere, so that everybody can find kind of find their end. Which another very very successful show pulled it off well was Nonsense. Well, it is somewhat like that. I mean, <laughs> please, or you can call it Nonsense. If I had one tenth the success of Nonsense, I'd be a very happy man. So. <laughs> Now, it was a certainly we looked at that. I mean, one of the reasons why it struck me as a commercial viable, commercially viable product was that in the theater we seem to love to poke a little fun at religion, from nonsense to late night catechism to way back in Sister Mary Ignatius explains it all. Even there is this natural, you know, inclination for us. We like to, you know, to, to poke fun a little bit at this. And but, there's a whole sub community of Jewish theater too exactly, that just, like, it, exactly. rips themselves apart. But it's very, it was very difficult to walk that line, and it's a total testament to the authors and what they did. And believe me, we slipped at times during the <laughs> development process on both sides, uh, one way or the other, but it's, a, it's an unbelievable testament to what Where they are did. the Muslim plays that poke fun? <laughs> They're probably coming. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Check your local listings. Before we continue, why don't we take a moment and listen to the title track for the show? We are the Altar Boys. Matthew, Mark, <laughs> Luke, Juan, and Abraham getting together save the world. <laughs> There's a brand new sound that's going around the world. World, world, world. It's deep in the heart of every boy and girl. Girl, girl. But it's not so new It's primitive and tribal If you look you can find it In Gideon's Bible To the ends of the earth We're trying hard to reach Every chance that we get We always like to preach And we feel so good It never fails to please us When we spread the word Of the one and only Jesus Father, Father, 
some people think We're really kind of odd When we sing about how We love the Lamb of God Yeah, they like to fight They heckle and dispute us But we don't care Church is super fine. We are the altar boys. We love the wafers and wine. We are the altar boys. And I think you're fine. We're gonna alter your minds. Now, what are some of the cities that the tour is hitting? We open in Chicago. We're playing everything from Chicago, Boston, Baltimore, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Honolulu even. So all over, Birmingham, Alabama, everywhere. Not that there's anything wrong with Des Moines, Iowa, but this tour is going to Hawaii. And, uh, I was in Iowa in the dead of winter. So. <laughs> well, what's it like getting a tour out to Hawaii? Well, it's I, 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 it's I, I won't the be there. Truck. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I won't be there, unfortunately. But it's very one of the great things about Alter Boy. It's a very unique show in that it doesn't you know take 18 trucks and a chandelier and 47 trailers of costumes to do the show. So Honolulu doesn't get a lot of properties. I mean, they, they don't get a lot of shows going over there because it's so difficult to trek the physical uh, production. Uh, Alter Boys, because of its simplicity, we were able, we called them up and said, guess what? We've got a show that, that we can bring to you. And they were very eager to have it. So we're thrilled to be going there. And I think the cast is doubly thrilled. <laughs> Kevin, you mentioned that you didn't think this was your sensibility at first originally, but... I would say that I think that's maybe an important thing when tackling this thing. My guess is if if somebody had been maybe too much in line at the beginning, it could have been very stale or very not looking for the right places to push the envelope. I mean, I think sometimes it's necessary to have a certain amount of a challenge as a writer where you're going, how do I make this interesting to me? And by doing so... You yeah, I, actually, ironically, I think you're right that that because it was a little bit of a foreign world to me. I mean, as far as my religious preference, I'm undeclared. So, you know, <laughs> uh, it was very, um, you know, I'm not Catholic and I didn't, you know, grow up with, with these sort of traditions or anything. So or even Jewish for, you know, in the case of Abraham. So I had to do a lot of research and like, you know, we were very careful about, you know, stepping on toes, maybe more so than if we were, if I was raised Catholic or, or Jewish or something. So we were a little, uh, a little concerned. I remember it when it, when it opened, you know, j- just wondering whether we would have people picketing outside <laughs> or, you know, what was going to kind of happen and, and overjoyed to find that like, you know, people of all denominations or lack thereof seem to be eating it up. So I think you're right. The ab- the objectivity that I think I, I, I had for it, I think was helpful. Yeah, it's whatever you want to draw yeah. from it, which is what, uh, you know, if you want to find it poking a little more fun, you can find all sorts of things hidden deep, deep down. <laughs> I, mean, I go back everywhere and I went, wow, I can't believe they wrote that. I just so. But at the same time, you know, I, we've done a bunch of focus groups on the show and I'll never forget the gentleman that stood up and said, I play the song Epiphany, or I am a Catholic, as the lyric goes, before his church meetings. If, for those of you who've seen the show, <laughs> uh, I am a Catholic is a very kind of uh, a coming out story about being a Catholic. But it 
it can be taken exactly that that this that this uh, character is very proud to be a, a Catholic, and it can be taken a totally different way. And this gentleman didn't seem to get what you know <laughs> what the authors may have been saying there, but he loved it for what it was, and that's all. And you again, you can take away from it whatever you want to. Zach, after the show, frequently you have audience members that kind of get this whole special package where they get a meet and greet with the cast. How do you like doing that? Oh, you know, those are great. We we have a tremendous fan base, uh, you know, which have been keeping the show alive and keeping it energetic every night. Uh, this group, they call themselves the Alterholics. Um, and, you know, they've got this whole community of them. There's thousands of them all around the country on their website, alterholics.com. There's all this stuff going on. And, but uh, so there's all these people, you know, we see these people all the time that come to the show over and over and over and still love it. And, you know, we get to meet all these people. Uh, and, you know, it's really great. They, they appreciate it. They love the show. They love the work that we've done. And so, it's, you know, it's always nice to interact with uh, the fans and the people that enjoy the show afterwards. It's a trip, but it's, it's a lot of fun. You know, we get to meet a lot of different people. So before we wrap up, we're going to play one more song from the show. I believe this one we're going to play is Something About You. Beautiful. Remind everybody that Alter Boys is now out on tour and still off Broadway. How long has this been running now? How many performances? In in New York, we're about to celebrate our second year anniversary in New York. Well, congratulations on that, and thanks for coming down and talking to our listeners of Broadway Bullet. Thank you. Thank you. When I met you, girl, I knew.
Whenever we get this frisky, I, I know it's hard to put on the brakes, baby, I know. But something's making me behave responsibly tonight. It's your special blend of charisma and spunk. Crunk, I guess you'd call it. But whatever it is, you got it all up in you, girl. You got crunk. And I think you understand. The soundtrack for Alter Boys is put out by Shikaboom Records, and you can pick that up, of course, at The Colony or at iTunes. This podcast is brought to you in part by Buena Vista Home Entertainment's release of Step Up. When Tyler Gage, a rough and streetwise hunk with raw talent, finds himself doing community service at a school for the performing arts, he also finds Nora, a beautiful and privileged classically trained dancer who's searching for a new partner. Spying Tyler's smooth moves, Nora decides to take a chance on him, but as they begin training, tension builds, tempers flare, and the differences in their background explode. On DVD, December 19th, rated PG-13. We have links, by the way, to all of the shows we talk about at our website, broadwaybullet.com, so stop by there if you're looking for more information on anything we're ever playing on the program. And I'd like to make a personal note to say that I'm sorry to see that High Fidelity is closing so soon, and not just because I had an interview lined up with the composers and two of the actors today who were feeling justly so not really up to doing the interview anymore. I'm not going to say that I think it's the best musical ever. But uh, I was very skeptical going in to watch High Fidelity, and you know what? I had a good time. The the cast was great. There were some fun songs. There was some really good choreography by Chris Catelli. The sets were fun. It was a good show, and I think most people, you know, would have felt like they got their money's worth going to see it. But unfortunately, I think in this climate where tickets are $100 and stakes are very high and it costs so much to get the word out to people, I can understand it being a hard sell to just be merely good. I think the the shows have to be great anymore. And I don't know, with any luck, shows like this and whatever other people do put together might help spread the word about these shows, letting some of the more deserving ones last a little bit longer, even if they don't deserve to be a smash, maybe it'll be a way for, you know, because they would have kept it running if the show is at least breaking even. But the fact is they were losing more money every day it stayed open. If it's at least breaking even, it makes sense to keep it running to see if it grabs hold and starts returning on the investment. But sorry to see High Fidelity go. In any case, I wish everybody involved with it the best. It certainly wasn't an embarrassment to anybody. 
Well, we'll be back next week with some more great stuff. We're finalizing up all the interviews, but we're going to have some fun stuff here for you, that's for sure. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and until next week, thanks for hopping on board the Broadway Bullet. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And, if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, Go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.